Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm joined by Terry Fakes to continue our discussion about books that have influenced us, formed us spiritually, culturally. They've been um, shapers for us in the way we think about things. We've done a few of these now and all of this is building up to a giant So We Speak book giveaway. So as you're listening to this in the month of June, we are celebrating our fifth birthday as a ministry, and so we thought we would just give away the whole lot of books that we're going to cover in this podcast series. So I think we just put in the order, I think it's 16 books that we're going to give away to some lucky winner. And uh, I don't I don't know if this is a pro or a con for this book list, but if you read all these, it will explain a lot about us, the two of us. And so mm-hmm. you'll get some of our most formative books and influences. Uh, agreed. And I think that's it's just an interesting insight and not that we're such interesting people, but we're probably stereotypical in some ways that everybody has read outside, of course, the scriptures themselves, but have read books that have deepened their spirituality, that have really resonated with them and helped them move forward in their faith. And every one of these have done that for you and for me. And some of these books have influenced one of us, some, both of us, um, but it's it's been fun to have these conversations about these formative books and to revisit some of these. Some of these books I haven't read in years, and I know the same for you. It's mm-hmm. fun to go back and look at your highlights and think about what what exact part of this really shaped your thinking. I read somewhere at one point that uh, it's not just what you read in the book. It's what you're thinking about while you read the book that becomes really formative. And I've also found that to be true as we go back through these books. I have two. That's that's really true. It's not just the highlights. Uh, and I don't highlight it sometimes because it's clever or it's very well said, but a lot of times because it stimulated my thinking. Well, for this specific episode, uh, it fits with what we've just been talking about, because I think this author of all the ones that we're going to do, and I feel like we say this every week, oh, this, this person's influenced me more than anybody else. Now we're going on week four of saying that between we did Keller, Bridges, <laughs> Eugene Peterson, this week, we're doing a couple of books by Doug Wilson. I will say, though, I know for a fact I have read more books by Doug Wilson than any other author on this list. Part of that is because he has written so many books, mm-hmm. over a hundred over a hundred books. And a lot of them are relatively short. There's a few long, very substantial books that he's written, but a lot of them are pretty short and very practical. Uh, and so that's part of the reason why. So I, I can definitely say that I've been influenced by him. I can definitely say that I've reflected a lot on his writing, his pastoring, his leading. Uh, but if you drop the name Doug Wilson in any circle, you're, you're probably either going to get one of two reactions. You're going to get a reaction of people who have no idea who he is, or right. you're going to get a reaction from people who do know who he is that either love him or hate him or some mix of the two. He's right. a very, um, I wouldn't even say he's really polarizing because when you say he's somebody's right. really polarizing, it's like they hold maybe like outlandish views or something. Right. The, the thing about Doug is he really doesn't hold many outlandish views. He gets accused sometimes of holding uh, a few outlandish views. He he holds very standard, reformed, biblical views, but he applies applies them so purely that I think in some ways it makes people who believe almost the same thing, but wouldn't go as far as he would go in putting them into practice uncomfortable. Um, I I think the other thing about Doug Wilson that's kind of interesting is most people encounter him because he loves controversy. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is uh, today through one of his books called Rules for Reformers. He, he loves controversy in cultural commentary. Uh, and, it, and if it's a question of Christ versus chaos, uh, Christianity versus, you know, the culture and the world, he is definitely on the engaged to transform side of things rather than the silo uh-huh. yourself off uh, in, in your own silos. Uh, but I, but I would say if you, the more you read about him and the more you find out about his life and his family, the more you see the whole well-rounded vision of Doug Wilson. And that's where I want to get to in this episode is what I respect the most about him is not what I first came to learn about him. And it's not the part that most people know, which is his cultural Mm -hmm. commentary, right? It's his writing and teaching and his example in family, in the church, in the home, as a parent, as a husband, uh, his ability to distill the Bible, the, the Bible's teaching into practical everyday relationships, the way we live, the way we have a church and all of that, I think is so profound. I wish more and more people would read his writing on that. So probably the best place to start is where did we each uh, discover Doug Wilson and, and and why are we now doing a podcast on him? I'll, I'll let you go first on that, and then uh, maybe I'll give a little background on him and and talk about how I discovered him as well. Well, you discovered him before I did because you would I'll say this about Douglas Wilson when you when you learn his story, which you'll tell in a minute, it, you have to respect the individual. You we both probably disagree with him on certain issues, but you have to respect him. But one of the things I really like about him is he's not mean at all. Everything you said so far is true about engagement and cultural issues, but he's not mean at all. Uh but he is witty. And you were texting me occasionally, I don't know, maybe you're in college or something, every now and then these quotes that were absolutely, I mean, they were PG Woodhouse mm-hmm. funny, witty, you know, that that level of wittiness. And I thought, I gotta check this guy out. So he has a blog called Blog and May Blog, Theology That Bites <laughs> Back. <laughs> And I started reading some of his blog entries, and I realized quickly I, I didn't line up 100% with the guy, but very bright, uh, very biblically based. And he made me better reading his blog. Let me put it mm-hmm. that way. He made me sharper by reading his blog. So I, I first got introduced to him by you texting some of his witty comments, then went to the blog, then realized he'd written books, on, and then I read several of his books. But you you obviously got started a little before I did. Was it through the blog that you got started? I think I discovered him through his blog and uh, just the the kind of cultural gladiatorial contests that he was waging against uh, people that, you know, as a college student or as a young person, you're probably more sensitive. I mean, you're on social media, you're reading different things. So you're more sensitive to the cultural battles that are going on, especially intramural mm-hmm. Uh, cultural battles, and he's a he's a heavy hitter in that area. And so I think that's where I first came across him. Um, he was writing against people that I was also wondering, how do you counter this, or you know, do these what, yeah. what would be the response to this uh, from people who are writing things within the Christian world, kind of the evangelical world attacks on the church, deconstruction kind of stuff. How do you answer a lot of this? Well, uh-huh. look no further, uh, because he will definitely show you an approach to answering that. And I think that's how right. I probably got interested in him. But the more you dive in and you start to learn his story a little bit, uh, the more respect you have for the guy. Uh, for If for no other reason, he is a 
he is a profoundly successful institution builder. So yeah. in, in the beginning of Mother Kirk, which is one of the books we're going to mention on the podcast, that's kind of his book on church. He talks about how he became the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. So, uh, you know, he, one of the things you have to notice about him is he's from Timbuktu. He's from the middle of nowhere, up in the chimney of Idaho, Moscow, Idaho. It's spelled like Moscow, like Russia. But he his his dad moved there because it was a college town. I think Idaho State is there, and it's about 20 miles away from Pullman, where Washington State is. And he moved there because he wanted to start an apologetic-based Christian bookstore. This was the 70s. This was a, a way of making inroads on college campuses and basically doing campus ministry, college campus ministry, uh -huh. was running these kind of apologetic bookstores. So they moved there. Doug joins the Navy, spends some time on a submarine, comes back, does his college and master's, and... Um, or maybe it's at the University of Idaho. I'd have to double check that. But anyway, he, so he does his college and master's and he's in the middle of kind of the Jesus people movement. Uh -huh. So he's going to this church plant that is maybe a year old or two years old. He's kind of a hippie Jesus movement guy. And he's been leading worship at this church, just contemporary songs with his guitar. And all of a sudden the pastor just up and leaves one Sunday and just leaves the congregation to say, you know, what are we going to do the next Sunday? Well, they come together and they decide to appoint some elders for the church that are going to oversee the church. And so Doug gets appointed an elder with a few others. And then they basically say, well, who's going to be the pastor of this church? And nobody wants to be the pastor. And so he's up there leading songs. And so he's kind of the de facto guy. And so he ends up just becoming the pastor, but he he doesn't know anything about anything church-wise, you know, as he would tell you. Yeah. And so what happens is he takes over this church of a few families and he starts to learn, starts to read, he starts to study, he starts to pastor. And over time, I think the way he would explain it over time is, you know, they he starts to teach through Romans and then he starts to realize, oh, there's something up with this reformed theology. So he becomes reformed and then he becomes uh, a post-millennialist, which we talked about in our Revelation series. He he actually believes that the Great Commission and the prophecies of, to the prophets in the Old Testament are going to come true on the earth yeah. through the church. He becomes a paedo-baptist. Uh, he becomes covenantal. So he has this evolution from kind of a hippie Jesus movement guy to a really staunch, reformed, post-millennial, theological pastor now. And he's been with this same church for, it's got to be about 40 years now. I think it was in the early 80s when he took over this church. So mm -hmm. in addition to that, they're in this relatively small college town, and he's not very satisfied with the public education options. So when his oldest of three kids gets ready to go to school, he has been reading Dorothy Sayers, kind of rediscovers the classical Christian model of education and just starts a classical Christian school. And in fact, now it would be hard to argue that Doug Wilson and Logo School, which is the school they started in the 80s, is not the father of the American classical Christian school movement. In fact, he they started the ACCS, which is the uh, Association for Classical Christian Schools. And uh, they don't oversee that directly anymore. But the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of classical Christian schools owes a large part to them starting that school and the writing that he subsequently did to talk about the classical Christian model and why people should do this.
Yeah, probably most of our listeners now look around and realize that there's a resurgent of not just Christian schools, but classical Christian schools that, that read the classics, that are well-grounded in the great ideas of the world, but Christian and, and Christianity interacting with the great ideas of the world. That's a big movement now and very successful, but he was at the very beginning of it. And not only did he start it, but as you said, his writings have been a roadmap for a lot of other people to understand why are we doing this and how do you do it and what does it look like? It's, it is a non-trivial thing for someone just to say, well, let's start a school and mm -hmm. let that then become a movement, uh, all the while pastoring this church. Yeah, there's a really good documentary actually on Logo School, what they did to start it in the classical Christian movement called Geronimo Amen, which I, I've always loved. Doug says that's the best two-word prayer that you can pray is Geronimo Amen. And that's the name of this. It's a two-part documentary on classical Christian education and Logo School in particular. So as his kids get older, uh, he realizes that they're not just going to need a Christian school to go to. They need a Christian college to go to. Mm -hmm. So he starts New St. Andrews in Moscow, and now it's a four-year accredited college. It's I don't know that it's huge, but it's a substantial school. They've actually had some pretty well-known faculty there uh, who have taught and who are currently teaching there. And they have a pastor's training college, uh, which is called Greyfriars Hall. They have a publishing arm called Canon Press that publishes a lot of original works, but it also publishes things that have gone out of copyright. So they have an edition of Calvin's Institutes, for example. They have a lot of Christian classics. And through Canon Press, they also publish a ton of the classical Christian school curriculum for right. schools across the country. Um, he's got a talk show called Man Rampant. He's got his blog. He's written over 100 books. I mean, one thing you cannot say about this guy is that he has not been productive. He has been amazingly productive. He's clearly very gifted at building institutions, making them healthy, figuring out mm -hmm. how to run them. He's, he's good in a boardroom. Um, he's, he's great with the nuts and bolts of how to, you know, day to day bring people in and let them do what they can do really well in institutions. Um, and and on top of all that, one of the things I respect the most about him is he's got three kids, and I think they've got some 20-something grandkids now, uh, who are all Christians. And, you know, we know that there's, and we talked about this on the podcast, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between good parenting or Christian parenting and uh, kids who are who are Christians. You know, we, right. we know a lot of great parents who have had kids that really struggle, and it's one of the mysteries of life and God's providence and one of the reasons that we pray as much as we do. But I will say uh, one of the things I really do respect is that his kids and grandkids have stayed walking with the Lord. They're not all grown yet. Uh, they love to be around each other. They are all, all still in Moscow together. And uh, it's, they're immensely productive for the kingdom together. If you look at what his kids and son, his uh, sons and daughter-in-law are doing, what their grandkids are doing, um, they've all graduated that are old enough from the school or the college, and uh, they're all still in that neck of the woods uh, doing what Doug set out to do in the early 80s, which was basically figure out how to live as a Christian in the church, as families, together in a community. And uh, it's worked spectacularly well in Moscow, Idaho. Agreed. He, uh, I know this isn't one of the books that, that we're going to start with, and we'll jump into Rules for Reformers, but when you talk about his... He's very productive. 
he hey wrote a little book called Productivity. Uh, it's not on our list, but it, it was influential to me, and I suspect it was to you. We just didn't pick it for this podcast, but it's a small book. And his idea is productivity. There's no secret method. You just use little blocks of time. And that's why he calls it plodding along. He says, it's amazing what you can get done with your little 15-minute increments of, of wasted time. He said, if you just plod along, you will accomplish great things. And mm -hmm. so Plotactivity is the name of the book. And I, I recommend it. You may not get everything out of it, but I will guarantee you this. You'll get something out of that book that you will start doing. I don't know if that was true for you, Cole, but it was for me. Yeah, definitely. I love that book. And it started with a post. I think the post came first called How I Don't Get Everything Done. Uh, because uh -huh. so many people have been writing into this uh, website about, okay, you've got all this stuff going on. How do you do all this? I mean, people are endlessly interested in productivity, people's mm -hmm. routines. And uh, I'll put a link to that uh, article in the show notes. But it, it is amazing. He, he, You know, the way he writes books is he'll take 15 minutes, he'll type out a hundred words, close the file or save, close the file. And then the next day, open it up, add a hundred more words. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody's brain right. works that way, but his, his does. And it's led to some pretty good results, I would say over time. You know, the other thing that I first encountered with him that I think is worth mentioning here, because it's going to be a lead into our discussion on rules of reformers. One of the first things I encountered with him was his debating. He is a great mm. debater because he is so sharp and so quick on his feet. And apologetics plays such a big role for him and in his life. Uh, his debates with Christopher Hitchens, which is now uh, a documentary called Collision, I think is what it's called. The New Atheism was a huge movement post 9-11. So from 2001. Mm -hmm. One for probably the next decade, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, huge, popular, writing New York best, New York Times bestsellers, just harassing people of biblical Christian values uh, and providing an apologetics against believing. So the problem was basically you had a lot of Christians who were capable of debating these guys in substance, but especially with somebody like Christopher Hitchens. They were right. totally and completely outmatched in terms of presentation. So mm -hmm. William Lane Craig, for example, brilliant, could absolutely shred Richard Dawkins in a debate on the facts. Christopher Hitchens ran, ran circles around this guy in terms of right. appealing to a live audience, presentation, his witticisms, his, his, uh -huh. his uh, ethos and pathos. Craig may have him on the logos, but he certainly doesn't have him on the other two. Right. And what I loved was when you watch Doug debate somebody like Christopher Hitchens, he is just as solid as Christopher Hitchens is intellectually, but he's also just as witty and just as good with an audience. And so mm -hmm. you have somebody now on the Christian side of things who's capable of going toe to toe with somebody like Hitchens in a way that makes Christianity look really good. Right. And what happened was, he doesn't, they're writing back and forth, I think, for Christianity today. And they're kind of going back and forth on, you know, is there a God? Is, is God good? Is religion good for the world? Just these kind of classic apologetics topics. And they both enjoy it so much that, that they reach out and get to know each other personally. And they decide to go out on tour together. So they take this mm -hmm. debate on the road and they do a bunch of different stops. 
And uh, they debate each other on stage and then they'll have dinner afterwards and, you know, they're kind of traveling around and they become really good friends. And Christopher Hitchens really begins to respect Doug Wilson because while he completely disagrees with him, one of the things he says in the documentary is he won't back down on the things that Christians are really supposed to believe. So a lot of times in the debate, people are kind of hedging like, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of one of the sharp elbows of the Christian faith. So I I don't want to, you know, get that out there because people might not believe Doug will just say it like it is. This is what we believe. We're not ashamed of it. And it's God's good design for the world or his plan or whatever it is. And one of the things Christopher Hitchens really came to respect is he actually will stand up for what he believes in. And and he doesn't make any apologies about it. He really believes it. And he'll really go to bat for it. And it makes their debates really interesting to watch and really fun to watch because it's, it's, it's a battle of the titans between these two. And so his ability to engage like that is one of the things that's really attractive. It's been really influential to me. And so he wrote a book about this. How do we engage with the culture? How do we do apologetics? And it's called Rules for Reformers. And it's essentially answering the question, what is it as Christians we're really trying to do in the culture? What what is it that we're really trying to accomplish in engaging with the secular world. So we're not just hiding out in our churches. We're not just living this kind of private religion. You can believe whatever you want in your head. No, we really do want to see things happen on a culture-wide scale. We really do want to see justice. We want to see the kingdom of God advance. But how do we go about doing that? And so this is Doug's book about how to engage with culture. Yeah, he starts out in this book with a, uh, he calls it a tip of the hat to Saul Alinsky. And probably most people have heard of Saul Alinsky, but basically he wrote the playbook for all the left-wing ideologies that are today. And that is how to get your ideology accepted. And and he's not, uh, he's a bare knuckle fighter. I mean, he's all about you know, using every dirty trick in the book. He's uh, Alinsky, very bright and very successful techniques, but he's all about, you know, how to use uh, public discontent and how to use riots and things. I mean, it's it's not pleasant, but he was very effective. This is Doug's answer to that, but from a Christian point of view. In other words, how do we go about things in a way that will result in reforming our culture and our society? So how would you say the book was fundamentally organized or what, you know, what is, how would you characterize this book, Cole? Well, he starts out with a discussion about Alinsky's book, which is called Rules for Radicals and uh, the principles that he puts in place. And so he said, I'm going to give a few principles of my own for cultural transformation. And of course, part of the difference is Alinsky is what we would call kind of a cynical pragmatist. He believes Mm -hmm. the worst in people and he's ready to exploit it. As Christians, we actually can't go everywhere that Saul Alinsky goes to because because we are bound by a duty to love our neighbor and love our enemy, which means there's really nobody that's left out of that command. So we are not Mm -hmm. supposed to engage in the politics of destruction. We are not supposed to do a bunch of ad hominem kind of arguments. You know, one of Saul Alinsky's principles is to take something that's divisive and personalize it. And Mm -hmm. once you personalize it, once you press people on things that are negative – and once you get really um, nasty about it with different people, the chances are they're going to back down from whatever it is that they that they think, and you and you can get your way. So it's it's kind of a naked power politics. Doug is coming at this saying that's 
that's actually not an option for Christians. Uh, this is not the way that we carry on our business. This is not how we carry on our discourse. But we actually haven't been left without tools of our own to bring to cultural engagement. And mm-hmm. one of the ones that that sticks out to me is one of the principles he talks about is religion trumps culture and culture trumps politics. Uh, th- this is this is interesting because usually people say uh, politics is downstream from culture culture. And Doug is going to say, and culture is downstream from religion. What you believe, what you fundamentally worship is going to determine everything about the culture that you create and live in, which is going to then influence our politics. So the problem for a lot of people is they start at politics. We got to change politics, but politics is downstream from culture, which is downstream from religion or worship. And so we got to start with worship. I think that uh, that was also on my list of one of the most impactful things that I thought about when I read this years ago. When we look at our world today, just take America today, you would say we are politically polarized. That's true. We have vehement political differences. That's true. But that's the that is the tail of this dog. That's not uh, the beginning of this. You look and you say, well, that's true. We do have two cultures operating in America. You have a conservative culture and you have a progressive. Those are the labels we put on them. But actually behind that, and this is something that the the left doesn't uh, usually admit to, there's actually a religion, not just an ideology, a religion. And you're starting to be able to see that now. Uh, You know that uh, for us as Christians, our religious beliefs influence the culture, the way we live our lives, and that influences how we're going to vote and how we stand on various issues. The same is true for people on the other side. And you really, with the sex wars, LGBTQ+, particularly transgenderism, particularly that, you realize that's not just a political issue. That's not just a cultural issue. Those are deeply held religious beliefs, beliefs about the nature of humanity that are completely at odds, by the way, with the Christian view. But it is a religion. And so fighting a political battle is way downstream of where this thing starts. I think that Mm -hmm. is one of the great observations that he made. And remember, this book is 21 or two years old, I, I think. So, I mean, it's a really good observation. It's very prescient in terms of what's coming. And I think at the end of this book, he lists a few things that he thinks are the big battlegrounds. And he's been right pretty much on every one of them uh, in in terms of here's what's coming down the pike. I love, I think this was in a sermon uh, or a conference message that he gave and not rules for reformers, but it it characterizes exactly what he's trying to do. He, He said at one point, apologetics is like, a person, you know, if if a person is in a pool trying to hold a beach beach ball under the water, that's what it's like to worship another god or to be an idolater. Is we are all mm. created so that our, our inner orientation is never going to be satisfied until we're worshiping God. Any idol is always going to be bankrupt in the end. It's, it's going to run out at the end. It will never satisfy. So worshiping anything other than the true God is kind of like holding a beach ball under the water. You can do it for a while, but the job of the apologist is not to get under the beach ball and push it up. It's to tickle the arms of the person who's holding it under. And I, I've, always thought, that, I've yeah. always thought that's a great metaphor for what it is we're trying to do is we're actually going with the grain of the way that God created the universe. Uh, there are certain religious truths that we believe are true. 
And we actually want to see those run downstream into culture and eventually into politics. Another thing in the uh, in this approach that he often says is it's not whether but which. And sometimes we mm-hmm. say like, uh, you know, we shouldn't legislate morality. And his point is, it's not whether we will legislate morality, it's which morality will be the legislation. And I think right. people are waking up to this in the last decade or so that there is no such thing as a neutral public square. There is there is no such thing as kind of a neutral, one size fits all. We're just going to have secular laws and rules for the way that people live amongst each other. No, that, that's actually not what's going to happen. What, what will happen is there will be a prevalent morality that undergirds all of what we legislate in a culture. And you, on, on the one hand, you have several approaches to this. You have classic liberals who think that the basic uh, principles of liberty and freedom and tolerance should govern a pluralistic society. You have people... Uh, this whole conversation about Christian nationalism that think that we should legislate certain Christian morals as a country. And, uh, you know, without endorsing either one of those, I think what we can agree is, but if it isn't that it's going to be a different kind of religion altogether. So, so it's not a question of whether there will be a morality in the public square, but which morality will be in the public square, which leads to one of the main points that he makes in this book is we actually do believe in a vision of goodness and justice and truth that extends beyond just what we believe in our heads and do in our churches, but extends out into our culture and the world that we live in. So an interesting point about a lot of the upheaval we've seen in the last few years is it's almost all driven by demands for things like justice, equality, love, dignity, consideration, identity, all of these topics are actually Christian topics. They've been co-opted for different versions of those same words. Uh, you know, so the so a vision of justice from a progressive and a vision of justice from an ultra-conservative are not the same, but they're talking about the same thing. And all of these rise out of the Christian worldview. Nobody was talking about justice in the public square uh, in the same way that Christians talk about it. Uh, right. Anywhere outside of basically the West, you have the Greco-Roman concept of justice, which is a little bit different. But Western culture has centered on these these virtues. And so what we look at when we look at cultural engagement is we do believe that God cares about justice in the public square. So that's where we can actually Mm -hmm. agree, progressive or whoever. Yeah, justice should be on offer in our society. Goodness, truth, beauty, consideration for others charity, humility, all of these things should pervade our common life together. Um, And as Christians, we actually should be about bringing those things to bear on our culture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, sometimes we can get lulled into thinking that everybody else can be advocating their version of that, and Christians better not advocate theirs. But one of the things that Doug Wilson is advocating in this book is, no, if we believe these things are really true, and that this is the way that God designed things to run smoothly, then we should be advocating these things. We can do it in a charitable right. way. We could, like I said, we're not going to get into the politics of destruction or the name calling or some of the things that we see in our public discourse these days, but we should certainly be about advocating for the kingdom of God in uh, the world that we live in. Completely agree. And I think that he he's just not willing to cede that ground, the public square, and many Christians get bluffed out of the public square like it's not fair by, because our, the opponents will say it's not fair for you to try to legislate your values. 
which translates into, I hope that intimidates you so that I can go legislate my values. And I think people have awakened now to realize that's exactly what's been happening. Mm -hmm. Because now it's getting to the point where everybody's feeling it, and particularly everyone's children are feeling it. And parents Mm -hmm. are waking up realizing, wait a minute, there are things being done to my children that uh, you've gone too far. And you can no longer afford to pretend that the secular public square is neutral. It's not neutral. And it's turned out to not even be life-giving. And Doug's point is, at least the values that God gave us is life-giving. It's not a power we want our way. We want people to thrive, and God knows how people thrive. Yeah. So I think he's emboldened us. The, the focus on kids is really important. There's a chapter in Rules for Reformers called The Littlest Platoon, which is on the family. And one of the things he points out at the beginning that I think we're all seeing to be true now is that the culture war is often aimed at children or if it's not aimed at children, as in the next generation, it the children are the ones that reap the effects of the culture wars. So when you talk about things like sexuality, when you talk about abortion, when you talk about justice, criminal justice reform, I mean, name your topic in, in the culture wars. The people who are affected first and most are children. There's a reason why a lot of this is taking place in a, in a battle over public schools. Why? Because public schools are the largest single entity to affect the next generation of people, right. voters, culture makers. And uh, parents are, you know, as we've seen in a kind of a giant revolt post-COVID is parents are not willing to let people just indoctrinate their kids. So Doug Doug was talking about this 40 years ago. That's why they started this school is because he thought, no, you right. need to raise kids, as Ephesians says, in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord. We should not pretend like kids are just neutral entities that at some point in the future will weigh all the options and decide, you know, what, right. what, what, what faith do I want to be? What values do I want to have? No, that's that's not how human development happens at all. If you don't show your kids what is right and true and show them in your own life what it's like to follow God, somebody else will show them what it's like to follow their God. And right. again, it's it's not a question of of whether, but which. And so he writes in this chapter, The Littlest Platoon, that if the culture war is aimed at children, Christians should double down and get really serious about investing in children through the godly virtues that are outlined in Scripture. Um, you know, there's a reason why the statistics show that kids who grow up in a home with a mom and a dad who stay together and love each other do better in life. And Mm -hmm. on the flip side of that, like you talked about earlier, some Christians have been intimidated to never say what I just said, because there are some great Christian people who have been through difficult times. And there are some exceptions where kids grow up and they end up being wonderful. And all of those things are amazing. That's the grace of God. It's, it's wonderful that all through the Bible, you read about people who come from broken families Mm -hmm and hurt and wounds, and God can redeem anything. But if you were to choose a path for your kids, or you were to choose a path for yourself, statistically speaking, and if you read the Bible, the best thing would be to grow up in a loving family with a mom and a dad Mm -hmm. who stay together and who work together to exhibit the virtues that God commands of us in scripture. And so, you know, Doug in characteristic fashion is like, this is God's way. Doesn't mean there aren't you know, people who find themselves in adverse circumstances. But if it's up to us, let's make that the case for as many people as we can. So let's dig into 
raising right. kids, strengthening marriages, helping mm-hmm. to live out, you know, the virtues of, of a Christ-like life in the home. Let's get really serious about that because otherwise everything else your kids are going to get, culturally speaking, is going to be against those things. Right. Yeah. Another point that I like, it kind of follows from this, given that we are in a battle of ideas and the, the uh, Saul Alinsky side is going to personalize things, is going to be mean. It's, it gets hateful. Uh, cancel culture is a great Alinsky tactic and it intimidates people. He says this, this is one of his phrases, is that Christians need to have a thick skin and a tender heart. Mm. And I would say that's one of the best descriptions of Jesus, as I thought about it, is Jesus had a very thick skin in that criticism did not change him. Apostle Paul, Peter, all of them, but they had a tender heart. They didn't become cynical. For example, he points out that no matter how compassionate you are, no matter how charitable Uh, No matter how kind you are, if you oppose some of the key elements of our society, they are going to hate you and you are going to be called an enemy. So his point is, is, uh, have a tender heart and do the right thing. Have a thick skin. And uh, I think that's probably echoes what Jesus said. Be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. But I like that. Have a thick skin and a tender heart. That's a catchy phrase that reminds me of that concept. Yeah, he has a section in Rules for Reformers about criticism, and I think it's only gotten more pertinent as time has gone on. Again, this book is not not that old, but probably a decade old. And uh, one of the things that he's talking about there is, yeah, if you if you take a stand on certain things, you're going to get absolutely raked over the coals, uh, culturally speaking. And with the advent of social media, it's not even going to be... Uh, you know, it's not even going to be in your interpersonal reactions. It's going to be anonymous people taking pot shots at you and people that are assassinating your character that don't know anything about you. And so he says, basically, as Christians, we need to steel ourselves with the kind of positive peer pressure that points us to do the things that God would have us do. And, and that would be things like having the courage of your convictions, not backing down, uh, making sure that we don't get pressured or guilted into basically going back on what God has called us to do. So he tells mm-hmm. this story that early on he had been writing for the paper in his town in, in Idaho. And he said, at any rate, after one of my early columns had curtsied and left the stage, an indignant letter to the editor appeared written by, as I recall, a gent named Terry Lawhead. It ran thus. And after all these years, I believe I could still quote it verbatim. Editor, Douglas Wilson is a complete idiot. Terry Lawhead, Moscow. <laughs> My dear wife read this penetrating analysis before I got home. And of course, this kind of thing was a complete novelty, our first encounter with liberal tolerance. She said, reading that was like getting punched in the stomach. When I got home, we talked it through and adopted the official demeanor toward hostile criticism that we have sought to maintain in our home ever since then. I suggested that Nancy should reply with a letter of her own to the editor. It should run, editor, Terry Lawhead doesn't know the half of it. Nancy Wilson, Moscow. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't end up running that, but I I thought that was really good because his whole thing on criticism is, look, for Christians, you should get people that know you well enough and love you and believe what you do, that they have open access in your life to tell you when you're off base. Uh, If you're Mm -hmm. not being rebuked fairly regularly as a Christian, you're probably not growing or you probably don't have people in your life that 
you know, care about you and have the access to point that out to you. And so his his position is basically cultivate that in your church, in your home, among your elders, among your family, and then don't listen to anybody else. Um, and that's mm-hmm. not to say in things like, you know, can you get better with criticism, but in terms of character assassination and things like that, open yourself up to people that have your best interest in mind, people in your church or your small group, mm-hmm. allow them to have access, practice growing from their criticism, and then stop listening to the ad hominem attacks on the internet and uh, people that write things like that. And I, I think that's pretty good advice for most Christians. If if most Christians would speak up to what God has put on their conscience, we would not have a lot of the issues in our country that we have. Christians True. are still a big enough block in this country that if they weren't intimidated by what other people thought and said about them who don't agree with them and don't have their best interest in mind, a lot of our cultural issues would stop overnight. And so I, I really think that what he's saying here is an important thing to cultivate. Be extremely open to feedback from people who can give you good, honest, God-exalting feedback, and don't listen to much else. I, I think that's pretty good advice. Well, there are so many things in this book, Cole, we could talk about. I thought I'd just throw out one tidbit that stuck out to me, and then maybe you could uh, do the same. There are two quotes uh, in this book that kind of go together. They're not right together, but here, here's the first one. He says, no man is truly sanctified until his money is. And when mm. I read that, I remember stopping and thinking about it and going, yes, you know, I've I've often said, and others have too, it's not original with me, but if you really want to know where your priorities in life are, look at your calendar and look at your checkbook. And for me, that's always been a good checkup to say, I know what I say, I believe, but would my calendar and my checkbook confirm that? And mm-hmm. I think that's what he's saying in maybe a little wittier way is no one is really sanctified until your money's also going to your purposes. And the second statement is this, and I thought this was convicting as well. He said, a lot of us as Christians love Jesus with our theology, but we apparently hate the poor with our economics. Mm. And I thought, you know what, that's a that's a really good point, and he's not afraid to touch on it, is that our personal holiness and uh, what we do with our money and how we feel about the poor— are all, this is so Jesus, are so tied in together. And for me, that was a really good wake-up call. It, it's, it just reminded me, pay attention, not just to your personal holiness, but is it showing itself in those areas? Yeah. I, I My takeaway is similar to yours in the sense that I think what Doug is really good at and what we learn in reading this book and, and a lot of other books that he's written is to take what we say we believe and mm-hmm. live like we believe it. Right. And that, you know, that's that's one thing in the cultural realm, you know, cultural criticism and things. But it's another in the home, in the church, in our personal lives. Um, I, I, I just feel like I've learned so much from his writing to say, oh, yeah, I, I believe that. But I don't think anybody outside my own head could really see that I believe that because it's not actually right. not really coming out in my life. And so in some ways, from a cultural perspective, he's like the the kid who points out that the emperor has no clothes. He He's the one right. who will say, hey, there's, there's no clothes here. While yeah. everybody else is kind of like, well, I probably shouldn't say anything. It might be looked at mm-hmm. as divisive or, uh, right. you know, combative or whatever, but he's willing to say it. And I think he's judicious and wise about the areas in which to say it and not say it. And so that, that's been one of the big takeaways for me is we, we do believe in things like justice for the poor. Are we willing to do it? A lot of Christians have checked out of that area because 
the social reforms of our culture are so diametrically opposed to what we would do as Christians uh, mm-hmm. that we want to get out of social justice altogether. And right. uh, we just don't have that option. We should be the people leading the charge on things like economic justice, social justice, et cetera, racial justice. We should we should be leading mm-hmm. the charge on that. But we would do it very differently than what we're seeing. And so, yeah, taking what we say we believe about forgiveness and grace and identity and God's way in the world and evangelism and actually living those things out are one of the things I hugely, hugely uh, have learned from Douglas Wilson. Let's do a little bit of a rapid fire. Like I said, there's so many books. This was kind of the main one. I think if people will pick up one and read it, uh, I'll give a couple of recommendations for other books I think would be a great first read. But Rules for Reformers would be an interesting one if you're interested in in culture and how to how to engage with the culture as a Christian. My favorite book by Doug Wilson is called Angels in the Architecture. It is, I think the subtitle is A Vision for Middle Earth. And the premise of the book is, it's a series of essays with another guy named Douglas Jones. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to reclaim a pre-modern view of the world. So modernism, postmodernism, a pre-modern world in which the Christian faith was permeating through what we call in Charles Taylor's terms, an enchanted world that everything mm-hmm. was infused right. with our beliefs about God Culture was basically Christian. You're living among Christian people. And uh, so this book is basically a vision of a love for beauty and for truth and um, for the home to be a reflection of God and his family. And so there are there are really disparate chapters in here all the way from, you know, they're looking at ancient texts. Like there's a chapter in there on Beowulf and the names of God. Mm-hmm. What can we learn about that? all the way down to little essays about the Christian home, little essays about writing and reading. It's an eclectic book, but it's really a rich book that will get you thinking about what would life be like if it were infused with God's design for the universe. My favorite area of his is on Christian parenting and family. And the Mm -hmm. first book I would recommend for people on that is a book called Why Children Matter, which is on godly parenting. And uh, one of the great quotes from that book is godly parenting is a function of becoming more like Jesus in the presence of little ones who are also in the process of becoming more like Jesus. I thought that was a great way to put that. It's a theoretical book, but it's also a practical book. Here's how to raise kids. Here's how to discipline kids. Here's how to work together in your marriage in a way that's God glorifying and uh, follows what God has talked to us about in the scriptures. There's a whole lot more about the home in the scriptures than you think there is. And once you start to read some of these books, you you find that out. Adding on to the parenting, I'll tell you two that I, I liked on marriage. He has one that's called How to Exasperate Your Wife, which mm-hmm. I've read a couple of times, and there are some great nuggets. He's got another called Decluttering Your Marriage. So the you know, the whole series, he he really does believe fundamentally that the home is the foundation of the church. The Christian home is the foundation. Uh, of the church. And then, of course, there's a whole suite of books on classical Christian education. One is uh, classical education in the homeschool. So he's written a, a number of texts on that. So, yes, there are more books than you can imagine that he has written. He's written commentaries, of course, on different books. Uh, 
When the Man Comes Around is his revelation commentary, which I just read. I hadn't read it. I just read it a few weeks ago as part of the Revelation series, and, and his insights are, are really good. I'll tell you a quote. This isn't a book, but I'll, I'll leave, close my part out with this. One of my favorite quotes that I think about often, I got from Doug Wilson, and he said this, the best teaching is this, when you're teaching something you love to people that you love. And I that's one of the two things I think about when I ever I go onto a stage or have the uh, privilege of teaching God's word to people is to remember, I love God's word. And I need to love these people and that that's the best teaching. And that little nugget has really stood with me as a teacher. Mm, that's a really good one. And one that he really embodies. Mm -hmm. If you're looking to get an intro to him and you're like, I'm not really a reader. Um, I'm not going to read dozens of books or blog posts. He was just on the Eric Metaxas show and, and they did about an hour long interview. I think he's on there for two or three long segments. And Metaxas has a good way of just kind of getting to the core of what is it that you're trying mm -hmm. to do? And right. uh, you'll get a great intro to Doug if you listen to that interview on the Eric Metaxas show. I think my concluding thought on him is the motto of their church, the vision statement of their church is all of Christ for all of life. And mm -hmm. I've always found that to be a motto that would be hard to improve on. All of Christ, all every bit of Christ for every part of your life. The major problem for most people, myself included, is segmenting your life and segmenting pieces of what God has revealed through right. his son, Jesus, and trying to pair those together. And what I think Doug and, and his legacy in Moscow, what I think they're so good at is taking the whole revelation of what God has shown us through Jesus, all of who God is, and figuring out ways to infuse all of life with that, that every mm -hmm. part of who we are would be changed by the gospel, uh, by being reunited with God, and that every part of who we are would then make its way out into our life. And every area, our work, our home, our family, our worship would all be infused with all of Christ. And so that, that would be my takeaways. I think that's what he should be remembered for. And I think that's what he, his impact has been on me is all of Christ for all of life. It would be hard to improve on that phrase. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.